Gracious Father, you are glorious. We thank you for your amazing grace. And we were, we were reminded through singing of songs to you and about you and, and reading, what a great gift it is to just read some prayers from, from other brothers that have gone before us that have wrestled with the same things that we wrestle with. We are reminded of our sin, but we are reminded also of your goodness and grace. We are reminded that we should not take sin lightly. And it, is, it is so horrible. And we forgive us when we have been flippant about sin. We're reminded at the great cost that the Son of God who would take on your wrath, the penalty that we deserve, but yet he took it for us because you love us. And so, Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us, even though we do not deserve another breath, you have given us yet another day of breath. You are good. So we worship and we adore you, and we plead for your help, Father. As we look and gaze upon your word this morning, we pray and ask for your help. Lord, will you cause application to take place in our hearts, even through the simple reading of your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, I was uh, roughly maybe junior high, beginning um, high school. I can't really remember. It was, a, it was a long time ago. But I would often go to work with my father. My father was a construction worker. He, did a, um, he was really handy. He was really, really skilled. He did like brick and block and tile you know, when, when he first got into the business of, of coping and tile, but then there was this little thing called the drought in the 80s, which gave birth to skateboarding and, and pools without water. So that business kind of went away. But so he moved, and eventually um, things catch up with you and, you and you end up doing kind of the lighter, easier job, even though it's not lighter. Nothing in construction is lighter, easier. But you can go from brick and block to tile, which just hurts you slower, I guess. Um, and you walk around with white, pale hands all the time because it sucks all the moisture out of your body. Anyway, it's a hard job. I've really sold it. You should go try it now. But um, I would go and do these jobs with him, and he had trained me to be his helper. And um, there were times when um, there would be certain critique on, on a job and, and maybe, you know, the, the, the super or whatever, whoever's over these people, this army of workers, they would... They would maybe mark it and like knock it out or whatever. And, and something had happened. I don't know exactly, but something relationally was going awry between my dad and, um, uh, you know, his boss, the people that hired him. And usually in construction, you might be, you're just kind of a hireling. You may, you may or may not be part of a union or a group or whatever, but he was, he was a hireling, you know, and set to do a certain amount of jobs. And, and I don't know about your experience in that world, but in uh, in um, some cases, um, this particular brand of work, there can be a gruffness and a harshness. Maybe you might be familiar with it. Um, uh, to give you an idea, when he was first learning the trade as a journeyman in the early days, I, I, in the 70s, they were, there was these really old, rusty, 
you know, leathery World War II vets, and if they didn't like the way you made the, the cement, they would just look at it and smoke in a cigarette and just dump it on the ground and say, you did it wrong, go get, bring me another batch. And so, I mean, you had to have a thick skin to work with some of these guys, and some of that culture had carried on, and apparently that's this particular day, we were working for someone very similar. And um, you need to know that my father at the time was probably not a Christian, and he was, could handle the critique, but... On this particular day, I don't know that he was quite ready, and he and this man, I guess, had some words. So you can imagine that we're, we're at the end of the day, and I'm actually in the passenger seat of the, the truck. It's, it's a dirt area. There's a lot of construction going on, and I can't quite see him on the other side of another truck having a conversation with his, his boss, and apparently it's not going well. So what I end up seeing is my father come running around the truck, and a guy holding what's a, a, a steel stake, you know, like half an inch, like, like a baseball bat, you know. A guy holding a stake running around the truck, and my dad running around the truck, and I'm like in shock at what's happening, this altercation that's like happening before my eyes, and I'm in junior high, high school, I'm just like in shock. They make it around the corner, and you need to know this, some of you know, and some of you may not know, but my father was a seasoned combat vet. So if you chased him around the truck with a weapon, like a piece of steel that was sharp, it was highly likely that he might retaliate in some way. So he did. He turns around the corner really just to gain some distance. This happens in a moment. And he reaches for his big knife that he used at work all day. And he got ready to fight. And then the guy stopped, and he threw the stake down, and he's like, that's it. Thank God he said, that's it. I don't have a father who was either in prison or dead or whatever. Uh, I, I didn't have a, at that point as a teenager. But remembering, reflecting back, and seeing that happen, that altercation, it was shocking. It was, it was, it was, it was strange. Ah, uh, what in the world just happened? He got in the truck, and he's like, all right, we're going. I was just like, what the heck just happened? Dad? And just heart beating, adrenaline pumping. I mean, it, it's so fast. At the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we are going to see with our own eyes an actual altercation between two of the legends of our faith. They get in a knife fight. No, they don't. They don't get in a knife fight. But there is a shocking um, altercation that actually takes place in the passage. And it's kind of, um, uh, what in the world just happened? Why, why is this such a big deal? And as we read the passage, we're going to find out why it is such an incredible deal and why there was this particular altercation between these two legends of the faith. And yet there was. And the question becomes, well, why? We will not only see that take place, and we're going to see why. We're going to answer why that actually happened and why Paul is so sharp as he is, but it's going to help us understand something very central about the faith it, itself as we see Paul's presentation of the argument for why he does what he does and why he says what he says so publicly to Peter. If you will turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, 
We are continuing in our series where we are addressing um, this whole issue of, of, uh, uh, of faith and grace and liberty. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it for us. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's an important word, isn't it? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, another very important word, along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you... Though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now I want us to just stop there for a moment. Why is Paul so harsh? Why does he do this so publicly? Now, we need to remember that um, because it's highly likely that maybe, maybe some of you read that and you think, oh, my goodness, wow, I'm, I'm kind of wired. You know, God designed me to confront people publicly, and I'm really excited that we're reading this passage because now I have the freedom to do that now. I'm really excited, and I want to just pause and say, hold your horses. Like, let's not get crazy but it raises some questions of why does he get so straightforward, so public, right? Well, one of the first things we see is this. Then in verse 11, we see, but when, P- when Cephas, that's Peter, okay, that's who that is, that's Peter. Paul is writing this, right? And he has made this amazing argument where he's, he's argued that, hey, look, I got the gospel not from, these, from, from the other apostles, but from God himself. There was a 14-year gap. There's a time where I go to Jerusalem during during the, um, during the church council, we come back, and then more of this kind of stuff is happening. And in the background, there's this issue, there's this, there's this struggle between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and what Paul goes on to call Judaizers, who want to enslave the Gentiles and say, in order for you to be a real Christian, you need to submit to um, the rest of this law, and then you're a Christian, and Paul is going to, has been arguing, no, that is not the case at all. Anything plus the gospel is not the gospel. But he says, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, Paul opposes him to his face. Because, why? Because he stood condemned. Now, now what is going on um, among, among these guys? You see, Peter, Peter is called a hypocrite. Peter 
is called someone who has misled these other people, and he's even misled Barnabas and the rest of the Jews that are there, that are that are among them, that have come to Antioch, um, probably with some, some sort of message. By the way, we don't totally know whether it was to Peter or kind of among them, but um, there was another thing that happened in Peter, and that is fear. You see, Peter was afraid. And Peter, what he was doing is that he, even though he had the conviction that the salvation is by faith in Christ and not by submitting to the law, his hypocrisy was stepping away from the Gentiles because he knew the Jewish guys that were coming down from Jerusalem or from, from James were saying something like, hey, you eat with them, you spend time with them, then you are guilty of being a sinner. And so Paul, so Peter would withdraw and not eat with them because he was afraid of what they thought. Okay? It's really weird that these people come down from that area, but it's an entire problem they've been dealing with. They have a council over it. It's just going to take time to deal with this issue. So he would withdraw, and then it draws others into this hypocrisy, and the thing that we see about Peter in his withdrawal is something that is not uncommon for all of us, and I want to address this particular issue among us while we look at it, and that is the issue of fear, because it says this, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, fear will have a very interesting effect on us, won't it, in terms of us living out our faith. Now, this isn't the first time that we see Peter afraid. You see, Jesus told Peter, hey, I tell you this, that, you know, the rooster's going to crow three times. You're going to deny me. And he's like, no, not me. Not me, Lord. And then a handmaiden notices him while he's kind of among Jesus, while he's getting a beating before they're going to crucify him and all those things. And some, this handmaiden says, hey, I know who you are. And he's like, you don't know me. And he hears the rooster crow. And he goes running off. But it's not the first time we see fear in him. Now, every single one of us have different triggers that affect whether it's shame or fear or guilt, and they have an effect on us, okay? There are certain ways that we feel and we respond to life when things happen, when certain pressures happen. And one of those potential things that you may feel is fear. Peter was afraid of the circumcision party, the Judaizers, and it changed his behavior so much so that Paul would call it hypocrisy, which comes, by the way, from, from the ancient world of acting, where you're wearing a mask, you're play acting. He is wearing a mask of, oh yeah, I don't really believe that I should do that, but he actually, in his heart, believes that he should eat with them. But he's pretending like... He, but his conviction doesn't match what he's wearing right now, that mask of, but he is afraid. Let me, let, me, let me address how fear might have hit you if you have children and how it might uh, affect your, your convictions. Let's say that you actually really believe in um, instructive discipline. You know how to instruct your children and then Maybe you know something about 
disciplining them when they don't do what you have uh, explained to them they need to follow. And I realize this looks different for all different ages, when, whether it's like, you know, the, the toddler all the way up to teenager. It, it takes on a different look, right? We kind of, we build on those things. I mean, and it starts with you being in the grocery store and your child is old enough to where you're holding them. Maybe they're learning some words. Maybe they've learned no. Like, no, you're not allowed to touch this, this, uh, this outlet right here. That, that's, that you, you, I remember looking at my daughter, by the way, when, when she was just a little baby. No, and we didn't want her to touch the electrical stuff in the house. And we would teach them. We would teach her. We'd say, hey, look, if you touch this, is really bad. It will really hurt you, sweetie. It will really hurt you really bad. You cannot touch that. Do you understand? Okay, dada. Right? And if you touch this, daddy's going to smack your hand. We, we, for her life, she needs to know that if we're going to be watching and test, and if she goes and does this, we are going to smack her hand or swat her butt, and then we're going to, and she might cry, and we're going to say, sweetie, we love you so much. We, we need to understand that you have to obey us in this. If you touch this, it can really hurt you. And you're teaching them things like that, and also as it relates to crossing the street, right? But then what happens, the test is, you, now you go from there to a public space, like a, like a shopping area, like Vons or whatever your favorite place is, and, and you're walking down the aisle, and their arms have these amazing magnets that are connected to their hands that have the power to pull things off the shelf, even though they're a few feet from it. Especially during the, in the aisle where there's glass. And may, it may or may not have happened to me, I'm not sure, I, um, but uh, where you go and they're able to magically touch those things, even though I've instructed the child, hey, you cannot touch, you can't touch these things while we're walking through here. I love you, Daddy. Whatever, whatever they're going through, right? Okay. But then they do it and it falls and it breaks. But now you're in a public setting and you probably feel a little embarrassed about how to, to do some corrective discipline in that situation. Probably, if you're fearful, instead of addressing it, which we should, is that you'll, you might ignore You might be tempted to just ignore it. Because you're embarrassed. Because you're afraid of what people will think. Because you want to get on your knee publicly and explain you, you, that you disobeyed Daddy, possibly. So is it so weird, is it so weird to see that happen even to an adult? And I don't think it is weird at all. That there are ways that that actually will come your own life, even if it's parenting your kids. By the way, if you don't have kids, you probably don't understand what we're talking about. That's okay. That's okay. But we know that there are times when you have, you have a situation where fear might impact you. Imagine teenagers. Where they're faced with opportunities in schools today and pressures that you and I didn't face quite the same way because of technology. For example, um, as it relates to technology, I was listening to a radio station talk about the most 
popular um, websites during the Winter Olympics in the Olympic uh, whatever, training, resting area. Did, did you hear about that? Did you, did you know what they were? There were two really popular websites. Um, one of them in general was pornography. The other one was Tinder. Tinder. Apparently it's like a dating thing. I don't know. Slash hookup. I don't know. Tinder, hangout, hookup. I don't know. Something weird. But they were saying those are the most popular things. Could you imagine that, that the Christians, the Christians may have felt, I'm having an issue with this. Is, there, is it me or is it the battery or me? Imagine the temptations that the Christians or the issues the opportunity that Christian athletes may have faced in that kind of context. Now, we need to be in the world, not of the world. We're not going to just yank you. Jesus doesn't pull us out of the world. Like, you're going to be in a situation where you might have to make some, uh, some decisions, but fear could creep in and you could kind of mess up. Can you imagine it's the same way for teenagers in the world that they live in that looks a little bit different than what we did, especially with the technology that we have? out. But you actually can face a situation similar to that, right, where you'll be fear, fearful. Peter was extremely fearful, and it's not so strange for us to, face, to, to deal with something like that as well. And he acted the way he did because of the fear that he faced. In verse 12, fearing the circumcision party. You guys will have some interesting things to discuss or think about. If you're in a branch group, you might talk about those things and ask, hey, what kind of things can I be afraid of that could possibly affect the way I live out my life. Now, with the way it affected Peter in this particular context was that he acted hypocritically. He was caving into legalism, and it was going to confuse the people around him because one man, they're like, dude, he can eat with us, and now he thinks of us as, uh, as sinners. Now, they would have known theologically that, hey, that they are sinners saved by grace, but they thought, you can't be with us because then you're, like, guilty of being with us because we're Gentiles. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, a hero of the faith, was led astray by their hypocrisy. By, this, by the way, this is a huge clue as to why Paul, a peer of Peter, by the way, is going to confront him very publicly. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's another massive clue. The reason, Paul, that is going to be so in intense and address this so publicly with Peter is because of its effect on the gospel. There, they were out of step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, 
because prior to the Jews showing up, Peter was living like a Gentile, enjoying the food they had, enjoying the drink they have, having a common meal with them and, and being with them and among them and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? The implications and why Paul had to address this are massive. One is the implications that it would have on the gospel itself, confusion about the gospel. It would divide the church. You would have two churches right from the very beginning, one that's saying abide by the law and the other saying, no, we're free in Christ. Another, a third issue that we would have that's massive is that you would have a split in the church and possibly a situation where the church could never reconcile over that issue. It is so massive. It is such a big deal that he has to go publicly. Now, it feels weird because when you read how he addresses some of the people in Jerusalem, he does it behind closed doors. But here it's very public. Part of it's because of Peter's influence over the entire church. Now, this is one of the things that we're going to run into next, and that is Paul is actually going to argue He's going to argue that why he's doing what he's doing. He's going to argue that by explaining that we are justified not by works but by faith. And this is one of the most important verses that happens in this letter. Listen to it. I'm going to read it in its entirety. It's going to be a couple of verses. We ourselves are Jews by birth in verse 15 and not Gentile sinners. Let me explain that. Isn't that a weird thing for him to say, Right? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's talking about this from the perspective of a Jewish Christian or a false Christian. Because the perspective of these Judaizers is that Gentiles are sinners and we and to associate with them is to make us be sinful. And so he's speaking from their perspective. In verse 16 he says, yet we know, we, all of us here, the people that I'm writing the letter to, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Okay? We know that we are not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. One of the most important sections of the whole letter where he makes it very simple that we are just by faith. We are justified by faith and not by works of the law. He contrasts it with the negative Read it again. Yet we know in verse 16 that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Justification is simply this, that you are put in a right legal standing. You are made right. You are made right. Imagine going to court. The court says, hey, look, judge person says you are actually not guilty of this. We're proclaiming you just, you know, it's, it's gone. Jesus, the scriptures are saying, hey, look, we are made right before God by faith in him. 
and not by works. And yet the temptation that we feel at times and the way with the way we live our lives, with our minds, with our thoughts, with what we think will save us is that we are saved somehow by ourselves or by our works. Every cult is like that. All of the religions of the world, by the way, are salvation by works. Every single one of them. Christianity is different than all of them with this thing. First of all, we're, we're Christ-centered. We are about Christ, but we're also about him making us justified. We're justified by faith in him and not by works. All other religions are you are saved and justified by your merit or your deeds, your works. And then we say, no, 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 I, I don't think I really think like that. I, I'm really, I mean, I, I'm saved by faith, but, but let's, let's address, let's address kind of the inward heart issues that, that take place that affect this, right? You see, one of the reasons we might be afraid, let, let's just talk about disciplining a child, right? It's so concrete, is that we feel like others will not accept me, and it's really important to me that others would accept me and if they don't accept me, I don't feel like I'm saved. You know, if I work hard enough and my job goes well enough, my mom and my dad will accept me and therefore I will be saved. A lot of times we are rescued or saved by something really tangible like our job or vocation or the person we love or our children. If my kids are doing really, really good in school, I feel saved. And if they're doing really, really bad, I feel like I have nothing to live for, potentially. Whenever there's a situation where we feel like I have nothing else to live for, what we find at the end of that is our idolatry and something that we want to save us. And what Paul is saying, hey, there's no work, no merit, anything outside of this, it's, it's not salvation. We are justified by faith in Christ, period. Verse 17, it says this, but, in, but, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we, t we too were found to be sinners, in, is Christ then a servant of sin? Another strange phrase. You guys, it is okay that you will, there will be places in the Bible that you will read. Maybe you're just brilliant. You read that and you go, yeah, that's not hard. I get it. Okay, but, but it, it, if you're honest, it's a little odd. In verse 7, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... Now he's talking about the perspective of a Gentile who's, and, and Paul included, and every Christian, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, what is he talking about when he says that? What he's saying is that those outside of the faith, the Judaizers, see us, see the Christians as sinners because you are endeavoring to be saved in the wrong way from their perspective. If you endeavor to be justified by faith in Christ, that's wrong, they say. And what he's doing is he's pointing out their objection of Christianity. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, follow his logic. Is Christ then a servant of sin? And the answer is no. Certainly not, he says. And what he's saying is, your view, Judaizer, of how you are justified is ridiculous. It's dumb, and it doesn't make any sense. That, that's what he's saying. It doesn't make any sense. Your, your reasoning is crazy. Jesus is not a servant of sin. 
And he goes on to say this. For if, in 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, have Peter in mind here. If I rebuild the law and a wall between us and Gentiles, what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He said, at the very least, if you try to lift up the law like this, then what it points out is our sin. And he's saying, you should not rebuild that. But that's what he's saying right there. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul is making an argument that the, uh, this Judaizing way of thinking is actually wrong, and that it's actually about justification in faith and not by works. And the job that we need to do is we need to figure out how are the ways in which we actually go down that road and think those thoughts and, and behave that way and think that there's something other than the gospel itself that saves us. So it's not, for through the law I died, in verse 19, to the law so that I might live to God. I have, be, I have been crucified with Christ. Now he gets into a bit of a m- mysterious part of the gospel. Listen to what he says. Because he's going to say things like this few times. It is no longer, excuse me, for through the law, in verse 19, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul, what in the world do you mean by that? There is a sense in which at, at the crucifixion of Christ, we participate with him because we are, we are, we are part, we are, we have union with Jesus. Jesus was crucified, and, the li- and we are living a life and the benefits of it with our unity, our union with him. I have been crucified with Christ. What that mean, it means is that I'm actually dead to the law. I'm dead to sin. It is no longer I who live, right? But Christ who lives in me, Christ lives in you. The life that you live, he says, in the flesh, Right? He's not talking about, it's a Greek word, it's like sarx, you know, it's a word that uh, sometimes will be interpreted to mean like my lust or sinfulness, but here he just just means like like my, my body. Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, meaning I live a physical life, I live by faith in the Son of God who, here's the gospel, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Paul is making this massive deal out of understanding justification by faith after confronting one of the the pillars of the faith so that others would not be misled, so the church would not be divided, and knowing that people can cave into things like fear and distort the the gospel and try to to live by something other than by grace and and, and, and cash in on legalism. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loves you. Those of you who know Jesus, he loves you. And he gave himself for you. And that is why you are saved. And our justification is not in any work, but it's by grace through faith. 
Well, the last thing that he argues here in verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. That's another accusation and objection that the Judaizers have. You nullify the grace of God. And he says, no, for, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, for nothing. If justification were through the law. All of the other religions of the world who want to self-justify themselves by earning their favor with God, by the way, they do it in vain. And Jesus, Christianity is completely different. And if he had died for that, he would have died for no purpose. He died so that we could be justified through him. Not through the law, but by grace through faith. You know, I, 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 go, I go back to the, whether it's, it's raising kids or whether it's the other loves that we have. One of the things that you're going to have to wrestle with or what are the things that I, that I love and that I love more than Jesus where I want it to save me. If I just can succeed in college, then my dad will accept me. And therefore, I will be saved. Isn't that what we go to? It might be very different for you. It's not, it's not mom and dad issues, although every one of us have that. Right? Every single one of us has mom and dad issues because of the brokenness of the world, and because of sin, and then we have things like fear or shame or guilt. It, it affects our entire personality. There's, there's wiring thrown in there, there's, but there's insecurities and and then the way it impacts us is how we live out our faith in the real world. One of the things that we need to address is we need to address the fact that, that it is God who saved us, and we cannot save ourselves. And that's where we're going to stop today. If you don't want to pray for us.